Hello, everyone. As promised last week, this week we're going to talk about plastic surgery, which is a surgical specialty involving reconstruction or alteration of the human body. I've found a lot on this, so this will be a two-parter. As often happens on this show, the World Wars will be our split, and so this will cover plastic surgery's growth right up to the First World War. Plastic surgery actually has an ancient history, being mentioned occasionally by ancient Egyptians, Romans, Indians, and Chinese. Most notably from my sources, Indian surgeons especially successfully refashioned noses, known as a rhinoplasty. Back in the day, nose damage was often caused by disease or by punishment. To fix such conditions, Hindu surgeons would dissect a flap of skin from the forehead, leaving it attached by the base above and between the eyes, and then using it to cover the nose. This technique was known as a flap graft, and is also the starting point for modern rhinoplasty techniques. In 1415, Antonio Branca introduced a new method of rhinoplasty after studying the Indian method. Instead of using other skin nearby from the face, he took a flap of skin from the upper arm and sutured it to the nose. After the skin fused with the nose correctly, they then severed the connection to the arm, which must have taken quite a while and been very inconvenient. Imagine having your arm connected to your nose for a span of several days or even weeks. Not bad, though, for 1415. This technique is known as a pedicle graft, and is a very important technique for skin grafts. Unfortunately, the only alternative really was the older flap graft, which was not much better. Disfiguring one part of your face to approve another is sometimes worthwhile, but a bit of a rough trade in general. And for either procedure, infection was still a risk, as was the skin graft not fusing correctly. Plastic surgery developed a pretty bad reputation early on, since risking a patient's life for aesthetics is pretty foolhardy. Parisian doctors actually forbade the practice of plastic surgery entirely back in 1788. Plastic surgery wasn't entirely stopped, though. Giuseppe Baronio did a lot of experiments on animals. In 1804, he wrote up an entire book and published it on the subject. His experiments from in there involved grafting skin from a ram to itself, but with varying amount of times between the skin harvesting and attachment. To start, Baronio cut a piece of skin from the back of the ram and immediately attached it to the opposite side of the same animal. Within eight days, the graft stuck. His next experiment was to cut a piece of skin, this time wait 18 minutes before attaching the skin, and the graft had some difficulty in taking. Finally, he did this one more time, but waited even longer, and the skin graft didn't work at all. His conclusion was that the longer the skin is separated from the body, the worse the graft will work. Credit where credit is due, he was right, although his experiments probably should have been replicated a few more times, but science was still in its earlier days. Baronio also apparently claimed to have grafted sheepskin onto a man, which seems highly unlikely and may be apocryphal, but is an interesting tidbit I found in my research nonetheless. Not much revolutionary happened that I found for a few decades, but Edward Zeiss of Dresden did introduce the term plastic surgery in 1838 by writing the first textbook of the subject. In 1869, Jacques-Louis Reverdin invented a new graft method, known as a pinched graft. Instead of using large pieces of skin, he would pick up a small bit of skin with forceps and snip it off with scissors. 
These small bits of skin were then pressed down over the site to be treated to fuse. Reverdan's method spurred new interest in skin grafting, and it began to see use again, especially for patients with serious burns. Another problem with older skin graft techniques is that they used the entire skin, which meant that wherever the skin was harvested from would cause scarring. In 1874, Karl Thiersch was the first to think, what if I just use part of the skin? So he shaved off just a top layer of skin so that the donor area could regenerate properly. The Thiersch graft met with little success because it was actually too thin. If you've ever tried handling plastic wrap, it's much the same problem. Wide, thin sheets of anything are hard to handle and hard to keep in place. Except with these skin grafts, you really need it not to fold on itself, and the orientation matters, so you need to place it in the right direction for the skin to fuse correctly, all unlike plastic wrap. The Thiersch graft was also just too thin. While it allowed for the donor area to heal properly, it wasn't enough skin to quite heal the actual wound being treated all the way, and often the treated area still looked scarred or injured. This is where Louis Ollier comes in. It seems that somewhat by accident, Louis Ollier did not really understand that there was a major difference between full thickness skin grafts and partial thickness skin grafts, and so he used both with lots of variation. Over time, it became clear that Thiersch grafts on the thicker side struck a nice balance between allowing the donor area to recover, but also giving satisfactory results to the treatment area. Some small advancements are made here and there over the next few decades, but nothing huge. All of the above methods have one big problem in common. They are free grafts. That is, pieces of skin are cut off entirely from the body, and then transported somewhere else. And as Baronio found, the skin being transplanted almost certainly was damaged when detached, and was not guaranteed to survive until new blood vessels grew in. When the First World War came about, a more reliable kind of skin graft was needed. Enter the tubed pedicle graft, sometimes known as the bucket handle or double end graft. This one is a bit hard to explain, so I've included a picture in the show notes, but the idea is that you cut a rectangle of skin while leaving both sides attached. The long sides are then sewn together to form a solid tube of skin. We actually don't know who first invented the procedure, but credit goes to a number of folks who all published, presented, or have records involving the technique separately and all in the span of a few years. These include John Law Amerd, Vladimir Filatov, Hugo Gonzer, and Harold Gillies. We'll talk about Gillies a whole lot more later anyway. The advantage of such a procedure is that blood supply to the skin being transplanted is never interrupted, since the skin is still attached at least somewhere at all times. The disadvantage is that it's more complicated, and maintaining that tube of skin is probably strange and uncomfortable for the patient. But anyway, that's early skin grafting techniques, We'll stop there for now since we've arrived at World War I and take a detour to talk about early bone grafting techniques. Bone grafting is exactly what it sounds like. The possibility of grafting bone had been explored by surgeons in the mid-1800s. One of the more incredible stories of an operation is by William Masawan in 1879. Masawan was a student of Joseph Lister and made a lot of contributions to surgery generally, being a pioneering neurosurgeon. He was also apparently very sassy. In one anecdote I found, a surgeon from the United States was visiting him in Scotland, and asked where he should bathe to clean himself before the operation. Massowin's response was, In Scotland, we bathe whether we operate or not. But anyway, we are here to talk 
of Masawen's exploits in bone grafting. In this particular instance, he had two patients, both young boys. One was suffering from osteomyelitis of the right arm, or an infection of the bone. Very serious, and unfortunately requires removal of almost the entire bone. The wound healed, but unfortunately, having no bones makes your arm pretty much useless, since it can no longer support weight. The parents of the boy actually asked Masawin to amputate the arm entirely, because that was common practice at the time. But he convinced them to let him try something new, because that was also common practice at the time, and doctors were kind of just winging it. A few months later, Masawin treated another patient who suffered from bow legs. The surgery is known as an osteotomy, where Masawin removed excess bone. But instead of discarding the removed bone as medical waste, Masawin kept it cut it into small fragments with a chisel, and then reopened up his first patient and placed the bone fragments in the groove where the bone used to be. Over the next year, Masawin made several further transplants of bone from other patients. Two years later, the bone chips from many folks had united to form a new bone, and although it was smaller than it should have been, it was still functional. The boy's untouched left arm was a little bit longer, but the boy with his once useless arm could at least lift his hand to his head and make some use of it. Masawin was to continue to observe his patient for some 30 years. The boy actually became a joiner and worked in engineering, so clearly the arm was working at least decently, even if it was 3 inches shorter than his other one. You may be wondering how this is possible for bone grafts. We know from our time looking at blood transfusions that the body often rejects and attacks things it perceives as foreign. And you would expect bones from several other people would count. Bones are a bit strange though, in that your bones have cells in them, but are of course primarily made of calcium. Even if the cells are attacked and killed, or are already dead as was probable, since the bones were removed entirely for some time before being transplanted, the calcium itself will stay behind and can act as scaffolding for new bone to grow onto. This means that not only are bone grafts from other humans possible, but even bone grafts from other animals. So naturally, Masawin tried that too. In 1912, he transplanted bone from dog to dog, and believed incorrectly that the implanted bone grew to form new bone, when it is in fact the opposite. Still worked out okay though, by coincidence, luckily for his patient since he then used dog bones to fill a defect in a human patient's skull. When it worked out, others followed in his footsteps, with many an incremental improvement made. During World War I, bone grafting was used to treat skull injuries, using bone from elsewhere in the patient, or even using animal bone. More importantly though, World War I occurred at a time when military technology was capable of terrible new wounds, and medical technology could keep you alive but disfigurement from those terrible new weapons made returning to ordinary life almost impossible. It was to trigger a revolution in plastic surgery. This week, we laid the foundation for that future work, which we'll talk about next week. Thanks for listening. If you've got feedback, please look in the show notes and feel free to contact me with those links. I am still wrangling with my new microphone, so sorry again for any audio issues. And finally, thanks to Jojo Tang for editing, Angie Lee for our cover art, and Muse Open for our music.